Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 3? We have uh, undertaken a study uh, through the book of Joshua on Sunday morning at Calvary. And, of course, we are looking at it historically as Israel's conquest of the Promised Land. But also we're looking at it spiritually as an instruction manual that the Holy Spirit has given to us as New Testament Christians, whereby we can learn to enter into all the fullness of God that really Paul talked about in Ephesians, where he talked about how that God has given to us a great inheritance, and uh, it's ours by faith. Well, it kind of parallels them going into the promised land by faith and, you know, gaining their inheritance. So there's a real correlation uh, there. And uh, we are currently in a section from verse 10 of chapter 1 through verse 15 of chapter 5, a section we've entitled the preparation for victory, the preparation for victory. This is before they actually started to fight the enemy, just getting across the Jordan and getting ready to fight the first battle. But there are things that we need to prepare our, our lives for as far as victory is concerned. Uh, I'm convinced victory is not something you wake up one day and walk in as a Christian. It's something you have to understand the principles behind and what God has promised you, and uh, then by God's grace apply them. So there are things that we need to learn. And we are in a subsection of that section we just mentioned from chapters 3, verse 1 through the end of chapter 4, which we have entitled Crossing into the Resurrection Life. Now let me just review quickly. The people of God have broken camp and are now on the move, as we have already pointed out. They are finally ready to leave the wilderness behind. It's been a long journey, hasn't it? Forty years wandering aimlessly back and forth through the desert with no real sense of purpose, all of that is about to change in a big way. They're about to enter into a brand new era in their nation's history to uh, dovetail with a brand new relationship with their God. The wilderness, well, we know that represents the life of carnality, complaining, and compromise. Canaan represents the life of the Spirit, a life of blessing and victory and abundance. So they are about to move from sojourners to soldiers, soldiers with a mission to conquer this land in the name of their God. We're soldiers of Christ, aren't we? The Bible clearly calls us that. And we have a mission too. It's called the Great Commission. To go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every person. Why? Because that's how we take territory away from the enemy for our God. The territory we're after is not land, it's souls. And that's why we need to be victorious. Because there's a lot at stake. And, of course, a lot of the people that we are reaching out to with the gospel are folks that we love, family, friends. We want to see them saved. So here they are. They're on the move now. There's only one obstacle standing between them and the promised land. And that's, as we said last week, the Jordan River, which at this time was a little bit of a problem because most of the year the Jordan River is about 20 yards long, four feet deep. Not a big deal. At flood stage, which is exactly where they were at this point, verse 15 tells us that, spring of the year, flood stage, the Jordan River was in several hundred yards wide, maybe a mile wide. The word Jordan means descender. This river dropped from Mount Hermon, where it began at the base of, down to where they were, 1,500 feet roughly, that at this point in the year where they were encamped, 
as they looked at this thing, it was a, a raging whitewater rapid. It was just a swollen thing. Just It was incredible uh, for them to just be looking at this thing. And God made them camp there for three days looking at it to really kind of get it into their hearts. There's no way you're getting across this thing on your own. And I don't even think they were even thinking about it. I mean, if they had grown impatient, Joshua and the people, and decided, well, let's go try to get across it ourselves. My goodness. Would have been disaster. Many thousands of people would have no doubt been swept down river and drowned. But not to worry. God was about to work a miracle. Very much like the miracle that he had performed 40 years earlier for their fathers when he parted the Red Sea and the children of Israel walked through on dry ground. However, it was going to be a little different this time. You see, 40 years earlier, under Moses, God parted the Red Sea before the children of Israel walked through on dry ground, right? But now they were going to have to step out in faith first, and then God was going to work a miracle. Why the change? Well, with knowledge comes what? Responsibility. And for 40 years, these people had seen the faithfulness and the power of their God every day. He brought them bread from heaven every day. He gave water to them from the rock. He protected them against the blazing sun of the desert by day, forming a pillar of cloud to shield them from the sun. By night, he gave them warmth and light as he became a pillar of fire. I mean, for all those years in the wilderness, God had been teaching them every day lessons in faith. They had seen his power consistently every single day to provide for them, to fulfill the promises he made to them, which was, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about anything. I got you covered. I'm your God. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to provide for you. And all of that was a learning experience. That generation saw all of these things, and therefore God expected more from them, from them than he did from their fathers because this generation had seen him work in such a powerful way every single day. See, they had learned to trust God in the little things. And now they were graduating to the next level of faith, where the obstacles were going to become a little bigger, and their faith was going to be stretched a little farther. But I want you to realize this is always how God works. God, first of all, asks us to trust him in the little things, and then he slowly increases it, right? Where now he is asking us to trust him for greater things. I remember reading of a book by uh, Hudson Taylor, who was um, a missionary in China, founded the China Inland Mission. And he really felt at a young age that God was going to lead him to China. So he began to then apply this principle. Uh, he reasoned this way. If I'm going to someday have to trust God for thousands of dollars to reach the people of China, I'm going to start right now trusting him for pennies. Just little ways, small little tiny things. And as God showed him his faithfulness, it increased his faith to trust God for bigger things. It's always how it works with the Lord. But through it all, God's main purpose in it is to, that he desires for us to live our lives in a constant state of dependency upon him, where we learn to trust him more and more and day by day, because as the Bible says, the just shall live by faith. It's a constant walk of faith. Of course, my flesh fights against a walk of faith, doesn't it? Doesn't our flesh fight against the walk of faith? God says, trust me, walk in faith. My flesh says, no, wait a minute now. I don't know if I want to go there. Lord, I'll tell you what you do. I'll, I'll make a deal with you. You write it all down on paper, all the things you want to do in my life, and give it to me. I'll look it over. If I approve it, we'll go. 
God says, no, it doesn't work like that. No, you got to trust me first. Begin to step out in faith, live your life in faith, and I will do the miraculous. See, we can't leave the wilderness. And again, what does the wilderness represent? The life of carnality. Saved, carnal. A lot of Christians who are saved, yet carnal. Why? They're not trusting God in their everyday lives. And we can't move from the life of the flesh, the carnal life, into the life of the spirit without taking a step of faith, first of all, and then walking by faith every day. What does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what, ideally, here's how it should look. You get up in the morning, and the first thing you do is commit your day to the Lord. First thing you do, you say, Lord, before you even get out of bed, thank you for a new day. And Lord, today I give this day to you. I pray that you give me sensitivity to know where your spirit is leading me, ears to hear what he's saying to me, and then you start your day as a walk of faith. You got a schedule, you got a routine, you got things to do. No problem, go do them. But always be open to how God may bring a person into your path to witness to. Even if the car breaks down, maybe the tow truck driver needs is ready to receive Christ and God wants you to talk to him or her. It's, it can be a very exciting life if it's lived right. If we really live the life God wants us to live, it's an adventure. I'm not saying it's not scary at times, because walking by faith can be a little scary at times. And yet it's quite an extraordinary thing when you really trust God to lead your life each day. Now, once in a while, I'm not saying it happens every day, once in a while, you will become face-to-face as you're walking with the Lord down the path he is leading you. There is going to come a time from time to time where you're going to come across an obstacle, like the Jordan River, like they did. Were they being led by God? Did God lead them to the Jordan River? Yes, because God wanted to lead them through it. God wanted to show them that what is an obstacle for them is simply an opportunity for God. Our obstacles are God's opportunities to teach us lessons in faith and dependency. Independence from God destroys everything God wants to do. We have to be dependent on Him. Sometimes our walk, if you know, we're walking with the Lord, we begin to put it on autopilot almost. That's not good. So God brings an obstacle that forces us to be dependent on Him. What is the obstacle? You fill in the blanks. You, fill in, you lost your job, and that's an obstacle. Because you know God's led you to take care of your family. That's his will. All right, well, God, I'm looking at a big obstacle here. I want to get across it. I want to work. I've put applications everywhere. Lord, it's up to you. I don't know what else to do. Trust God. But there's all kinds of things that we could apply this to. Israel, at this point in the story, is facing one of those impossible obstacles. And God is telling them that they were going to have to trust him. And not like their forefathers, who he parted the Red Sea first, and then they walked through. No, God says, you know what? I've been teaching you for 40 years. You ought to be older than that now. Okay? I mean, they just came out of Egypt. They were brand new. That's why he parted the Red Sea first. Their faith hadn't had a chance to grow yet. You guys have no excuse. They were the kindergarten. You're graduate school. It's time to act like grown-ups now and to trust me for bigger things. And so what was an obstacle really was God's way of teaching them, look, I want to work a miracle here, but I want you to step out in faith before I work the miracle now. In other words, folks, you're going to have to get your feet wet. You have to step out in faith. Of course, this is never easy. It would have been a lot easier for them to just stay camped in the wilderness in the comfort of their own tents, right? Uh, just hang out in the tent, you know, and then it would have been to break camp and walk, step out in faith. I mean, let's be honest. It's always safer to stay in your comfort zone where you're surrounded by 
familiar things, you know. It's, it's a lot easier to stay right here, right? Come to church, you're around Christians, you know, you love, we love each other. It's safe here, there's no persecution here. We're all like-minded, we all love the Lord, we all sing His praises. It's, it's nice to hang out with the redeemed, isn't it? Stay in our comfort zone, just hang out here. This is our tent, okay? This is our little neighborhood. Right, it's a lot easier just to stay here in the comfort of our familiar surroundings rather than stepping out into the unknown. But you see, that's not how soldiers are made, and that's not how battles are won. Great things only happen when God's people leave their comfort zones, leave the comfort of their tents, whether that be your comfort zone personally or your church, or it, to step out and begin to claim new territory for the Lord. Now, we are getting a little ahead of ourselves. So let me just stop and say this. Before we can step out in faith, there are a few things we need to do first. And this is what we've been looking at. And I'm just going to touch on these. We've already looked at these. Before we can really step out in faith, you first have to cling to God's promises. Has God promised you something that you want to step out in faith in? It's a lot of Christians who are being told that God has promised them things he has not promised them. And so they're stepping out in faith. I've talked to some. Well, God wants me wealthy. And I have, to, I have to give my offering. I have to sow my seed faith. Which means I have to give all the money I have to the preacher on TV. Because I've been promised a hundredfold return. And I'm going to use that to build my business. And, and I'm going to be wealthy. God hasn't promised you that. The guy on TV did. But God hasn't promised you that. And I've had people say, I, I gave everything. I'm broke. You can't step out in faith unless God has clearly promised you something. Cling to the promises of God. Secondly, depend on God's power. Depend on God's power. We have to understand that, you know what, we can do nothing apart from him. And God, again, does not want us independent. He wants us totally dependent. Every day he wants us to acknowledge our weakness and our inability to, to even walk with him, let alone serve him to defeat enemies. So we have to be totally dependent on God's power. Number three, we have to be led by the word. We have to be led by the word of God. This is what we looked at last time. Let's read verses two through four again. And so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet, there shall be a space between you and it of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go. For you have not passed this way before. Or the Hebrew is, because you have not let, been led in this manner before. How were they led in the wilderness? Very visible, dynamic displays of God's power. You've got a gigantic pillar of fire at night and a gigantic pillar of cloud by day. When the Shekinah glory lifted up and began to move. They broke camp and moved. When the Shekinah glory stopped over an area, they set up camp. Very simple, right? Very simple to be led by God in that way, right? Well, when you're a child, when you're immature in your faith, God's got to do that. But when you become mature in your walk, you've, you've, you've walked with God for a while, God's leading becomes more subtle. Now he wants you to get into the word, to know the word and be led by the word of God which is through the power of the Spirit. So you have not been led in this manner before. That's true. 
because they were crossing over the Jordan. They were going to be living now as mature believers in the land of Canaan. And the ark, as we've already pointed out, represented the presence of God on the earth. In fact, it represented his throne. The ark went before him went before them, which teaches us, of course, that victory is something that only God can lead us into. Now, why do we call this being led by the word of God? Because the Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of the Testimony. Why? Because the tables of the law, which were called the tablets of the testimony, that which God gave Moses, that had the Ten Commandments written on them, were placed into the Ark. And therefore, the Ark became the holder, the receptacle for God's word. In other words, They were being led symbolically now by the word of God. And that's what we pointed out last time. It is the word of God that directs and leads God's people into victory today. And this is God instructed them to leave a space of about 2,000 cubits. That's a little more than half a mile. Why did he do that? Why is such a big space between the people and the ark? Well, practically, again, as we pointed out, there's like two and a half to three million people in the wilderness waiting to go into the promised land. You know, they didn't want to all be hovering over the ark. God wanted to give enough space where everybody could see it. See, here's the thing. If everybody huddled around that ark of the covenant, right, everybody behind would have seen this mass of people moving in a certain direction. But they couldn't have been sure they were being led by the word of God because all you see is humanity in front of you. See, God doesn't want us to follow man. He wants us to follow his word. That's why he said, no, 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 no. Put the ark enough distance in front so everybody can see it, can focus on it, because it alone, the word of God, is the only thing that can really lead our lives into victory. It's the only thing that we can really focus. The word of God needs to have a place of honor is the idea, where it can be clearly seen by everybody, a place all by itself. That is the problem in the church today. The word of God has been covered over with all kinds of things, man, man's wisdom, People are following man today. They're not following God's word. Today, there's a real celebrity mentality in the church of Jesus Christ. We have a lot of people on television. You know, they look good. They dress nice. They speak really well. And you know what? People are looking at them and following them and not really God's word. See, here's the thing. God does not want us following any human being. Don't follow me unless you make sure I'm following the Lord. But even then, make sure that what I'm teaching you lines up with God's word. Because you are to follow the Word of God, not my teaching or anybody else's teaching, unless, of course, it lines up with God's Word. Be Bereans, right? Many churches today have not given the Word of God its proper place. We went into this in detail last time, so you can get the CD. But they haven't really set the Bible in a place of honor all by itself, where it can be clearly seen and focused on as the only source of truth that can lead a person into a new life of victory and blessing. Again, so many pastors teach from the Bible, but they don't really teach the Bible. I just had somebody the other day, just the other day. So, you know, I listened to this guy. I don't know if I watched watched them on TV or, you know, on the radio. He reads a couple verses, and the whole message, he's telling stories. And then maybe at the end, he comes back and reads those couple of verses again. That is not teaching the Bible. That's giving it lip service. Now, if the stories really relate and illustrate a point in the text, fine. I'm not against that. But I've heard some of these guys, and honestly, where are you going? You talk, talk about confusion. It's like, I'm not even sure where you're going with this. That's the problem. All right. So we must, if we're going to cross over from the wilderness, spiritually speaking, to 
our own personal promised land, the life of the Spirit, we have to cling to God's promises. We have to depend on God's power. We have to be led by God's word. And fourthly, when you say, how can I enter into the life of the Spirit, verse 5 tells you, you've got to sanctify yourself. Verse 5, it says, And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, this is reminiscent of something that God had said to the people 40 years earlier through Moses. You can turn to Exodus chapter 19. I want to just show you this quickly. Exodus chapter 19. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. In the Old Testament, when God said that his people were to sanctify themselves, it meant that everyone was to bathe, everyone was to change their clothes, and if you were married, you needed to abstain from sexual contact with your spouse for a time, not indefinitely, for a time, as a symbol of their consecration to God. And it always signified, listen, every time God said this to his people, it always signified they were about to enter into a new beginning with the Lord. A new beginning with the Lord. See, in the book of Joshua, the wilderness, as we've already said, represented a life of carnality, complaining, and compromise. Or in other words, sin. And I forgot to look the reference up, but I think there's a passage in the Old Testament that actually calls the wilderness the wilderness of sin. Because that's what it is, right? Complaining, murmuring, carnality, compromise, all of that is sin. The promised land represented a new beginning for the people of God. But listen, a new beginning they could not enter into without first washing themselves, changing their clothes, and putting God even before their bodily appetites, which in this case spoke of abstaining from sexual contact with their spouses for a time. In other words, this new beginning was going to equal a life of consecration and holiness. And the same idea applies to us. To experience a new beginning with the Lord, we must first of all wash ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. These people were already saved. They already had come out of Egypt, which was a type of the world. We're talking to Christians now who have allowed themselves to slip into or maybe never got out of a walk of carnality, compromise, complaining, you know, a spiritual wilderness. If you want to get out of the wilderness, you got to sanctify yourself. What does that mean? Well... As God told them, wash yourself, we have to wash ourselves. What does that mean? Well, this first of all begins with confession. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession in the Greek literally means to say the same thing. It's your way of saying to God, Lord, here's what I've been doing and I've been justifying it. But you've been convicting me and I know it's wrong. And now, Lord, I confess it to you. In other words, I agree with your word that what I have been doing is wrong. It's hard for some people to say that. Three hardest words for some people to say in the English language, I was wrong. There can be no cleansing, there can be no forgiveness, and there can be no life of the Spirit as long 
is you're not willing to say, God, I am wrong for the way I have been living. No, I'm not as bad as some people, but I'm certainly not living the life that pleases your heart. Therefore, I confess, I agree with you in your word. You said this is wrong. I've been doing it. I'm wrong. Lord, I confess it to you. That's the first step. So the washing, spiritually speaking, in our lives begins with confession, which then leads to repentance. And repentance in this context would be literally turning away from sin and turning toward God. It's not enough to confess you're wrong. Now you have to turn around and make it right, right? And so washing would involve confessing and also repenting. And in first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, listen to what Paul said. He said, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, listen, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, cleansing doesn't just encompass confessing that I'm wrong. It's then pursuing a life of holiness. It's very important. And thirdly, washing ourselves involves staying in the word of God for continual cleansing every day. Remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 119, verse 9? How can a young man or woman cleanse their way? By taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not, might not sin against you. And the idea is every day, right? It's not a one-time thing. This is every day I'm hiding God's word in my heart. Every day I want to walk in purity. Ephesians 5, you have to turn there, verses 25 and 6. Paul said, husbands, love your wives. Listen, just as Christ also loved the church, his bride, and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her. How is that done? Listen, with the washing of the water by the word. See, I can't tell you how important it is that you stay in the word of God every day because you go out into the world, it's a defiling place out there. The language, the attitudes, you brush elbows with people who are definitely unredeemed. Not that we're better than them. We pray for them. We were once one of them. But you're going to have to come in contact. We don't, we're not supposed to hold up in monasteries or convents. We're not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world. We're to go into all the world and bring the good news. But as we do that, you're going to pick up some of the defilement of the world. that You can't help it. You've got to come home and take a bath. Open God's word. Start thinking again like God thinks. Have you ever experienced that? You come home after a hard day, and you know, I don't, I've never really worked in an office. I feel sorry for some of you guys and gals that do. Just the stuff that goes on, the jokes, the language, the mentality, the attitudes. You got to work in that environment all day. You know, the slime pit. You got to come home, wash yourself, open God's Word. Don't you be like, ah. You know, I have worked a lot of manual jobs. Where I've gotten really dirty. First thing I do is I head for the shower. I can't relax until I head for the shower and clean up. Well, you know what? As Christians, that's exactly what we should do. Come home, head for the shower, which means open your Bible, begin to just read a little bit what God has said, cleansing the defilement of the world away. All right. God told them, first of all, to wash themselves. We need to wash ourselves. Secondly, he told them that they, were, they had to change their clothes. Well... Being sanctified involves us spiritually changing our clothes, which symbolically, listen, means that we take off the old and put on the new. What am I talking about? Turn to Colossians 3. This is a great, great section for exactly what we're talking about. I won't even teach it to you. I'm just going to read it. You, you can meditate on it and 
Pray that God give you the grace to do this. God says, change your clothes, Israel, before I'm going to lead you into the promised land. God is saying, Christians, change your clothes before I'm going to lead you into the life of the Spirit. Well, what does that mean, Lord? It means to put off the old and put on the new. Colossians 3, starting in verse 8. Paul said, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He's talking to believers now, if you can believe that. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. He told you what to take off. Now he's telling you, here's what you put on. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Not maybe do or try to do. Got to do it. But above all these, put on love, God's love, which is the bond of perfection. Now you read that and go, wow, I, I, wow I'm not sure I can do that. I want to, but that looks hard. Look, it's impossible. The life of the Spirit is not something that we work up and try real hard to do. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's a miracle life. All right? It's a miracle life. The only way you can do it is by drawing close to the Lord each day and letting the Spirit live His life through you. The life that I now live, Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's a life of faith, just like we said. You enter into it by faith, and you walk in it every day by faith. Faith that God has told you to put off these and to put on these others. And you know what, Lord, I want to, but I can't do it. I know that. You draw close to me. I will do it through you. I will do it through you, God is saying. So first of all, wash ourselves. Secondly, change our clothes in a sense. And thirdly, God instructed them to not come near their spouses for a time. Well, I just see in this God saying, look, if you want to walk in the Spirit... I'm not telling you to divorce your spouses and not have any contact with them, of course. I'm just saying put me first in your life in every area, even before your bodily appetites. And let's face it, folks, the sex drive is one of the most powerful bodily appetites we have. And in the context of marriage, it's completely legitimate. But sometimes God even says, you know what, deny yourselves a little bit. I'm not forbidding you from having sex as husbands and wives. I'm not forbidding you to eat good food. But once in a while, deny yourself for me because you want to draw close to me and you want a new beginning. You're serious about a new cha- a change of life. You know, I won't read it to you, but in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 and 3, and then verse 5, Paul is saying, look, God doesn't want you burning with sexual desire. If he's not called you to singleness, go ahead and marry. And don't deprive yourself from one another. In other words, spouses, you have a resp- you're not your own anymore. Husbands, you belong to your wife. Wives, you, uh, you belong to your husband. Don't deny, don't withhold your bodies from each other. Except for a time to give yourself over to prayer and fasting and then come back together. But there are times when we should say, God, I love you so much, Lord, and I really want to get serious now. And God is saying, okay, well then take some time to get away maybe. Deny your, do some fasting. That's, that's why twice a year we do our five-day fast. And we tell you, of course, try not to eat, drink water, try not to eat, and don't have contact with each other sexually because we want at this time to be totally focused on God. It's not that God is saying you can't, as husbands and wives, have sex ever if you're going to be holy. No. Paul says you need to if you're, if you're married. 
It's just that once in a while, is God important enough to say, Lord, I'm going to you know, take a few days and get away and pray and fast and seek you. I want you to raise me to a new level of spirituality. I'm tired of hanging out in the wilderness. Well, verse 5 again, Joshua 3. Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And the question is, of course, why doesn't God do many wonders through us or among us today in our country? There's a lot of reasons, folks. But I think one of the main reasons is we have not separated ourselves from the world in all of its defilements. We are not taking a holy life seriously. There's other reasons. But I think a big one is instead of being separate from the world, we have become part of the world. Hey, look, we live in the world. And not to beat a metaphor to death, as I've said ad nauseum, it's okay for a ship to be in the sea, but watch out when the sea gets into the ship. It was okay for Daniel and his friends to be in Babylon. That's where God had put them. But God helped them if Babylon got into them. And it did get into a lot of God's people in Babylon. And that's the problem. We are in the world because this is where God has put us. This is his will for our lives, that we be in the world but not of the world. And once we begin to become of the world, once we open up ourselves to the world's way of thinking, the world's desires, the world's goals, well, that's when the power of God begins to shut down. It's a lack of holiness. It's just We have not separated ourselves from the defilements of the world. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6, a section you all know very well, but let me just read it to you again. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14, where Paul says, Don't be unequally yoked together with Unbelievers. Now, I believe in this context, primarily Paul was talking about not being married to an unbeliever if you're a Christian. I think it applies if you're thinking about going into any partnership with an unbeliever, whether it's a business. Sometimes people say to me, well, I'm thinking about going into business with this guy. He's a good friend, but he's not saved. What do you think? Terrible idea. That's what I think. It's a terrible idea. But it could apply to other things. You don't have to be unequally yoked with a person. You can be unequally yoked with a philosophy or a desire, or the world. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, God said, come out from among them and be separate. Not literally, because again, God doesn't want us to isolate ourselves in monasteries or whatever. He's saying, in your heart, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Not just receive you. Paul went on to tell a young pastor named Timothy in Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, but in a great house, Timothy, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. You get the idea? You walk into a house and there are containers for different purposes. Some are beautiful and they're designed to hold flowers and be put on display. Some of them are garbage pails that you leave in the bathroom or the garage. They're designed to hold garbage. Now, do you want to be a garbage pail in the body of Christ or do you want to be a beautiful vase for God to display his glory through. It's up to us. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You want to be used by God, then sanctify yourself. 
Separate yourself from the world in your heart. Stop trying to serve two masters, which is what this book will basically end with, a challenge to choose who we are going to serve. Are we going to serve the gods of this world, the gods of money and power and lust and pleasure and materialism? Or are we going to serve the God of heaven who redeemed us and filled us with his spirit and has a plan and purpose for our lives? See, the Lord promised the children of Israel that if they sanctified themselves, he would do wonders among them the next day. Yes, he would part the Jordan River. But folks, that wouldn't be the end of it. That would only begin to be a life of the miraculous. God was going to go before them and then give them the grace and strength to defeat the enemy and to take the land. I mean, a life of sanctification opens up all kinds of doors for God to begin to work. Today, tomorrow, the next day, next week, and so on. All right, let's finish up. First of all, if we're going to cross from the life of the flesh into the life of the spirit, we've got to cling to God's promises, depend on God's power, be led by God's word. We need to sanctify ourselves. And then fifthly, we need to then finally step out in faith. Verse 6, Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will give you without fail, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Termites and whoever else was there. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, that they shall stand as a heap. And so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all of its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam. <laughs> Hold on to that for next time. The city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of Arabah, the salt sea failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Once again, unless we are willing to step out in faith and get our feet wet, we're not likely to experience much in the way of victory or much in the way of service for the Lord. We had planned to do a little video presentation of John and Sissy Nelson's ministry this morning, but the video thing didn't work. Um, quite a ministry that God has been evolving over the years. Cornerstone Outreach, 
ministry to feed the, the hungry, help the homeless. Uh, we'll have the presentation uh, in a couple weeks after a uh, week after Bill Federer is here. But John was telling me before service for about four or five years, John and Sissy just sat here and just soaked in the word. And then God began to impress upon their hearts to take a step in faith, to get out of the comfort zone and do something. So they signed up for Sunday school. And from that point, God has begun to then work more and more in their lives and begin, has begun to give them more and more responsibility in ministry. And now their ministry is helping literally thousands of people around the Chicagoland area and beyond. You know, last year, when we got word that a whole network of Calvary radio stations throughout the Midwest was going to be broken up and sold piece by piece to various people, some secular, maybe some Christian, we felt that that would have been a great tragedy since that network took years to lay down for the purpose of getting the gospel and the word of God out. And the thought of it being broken up and sold in pieces for its monetary value was something that we just, in the Midwest, several of us pastors thought, God, we cannot believe this is your will. And so we wanted to buy those stations. There's over 30 stations. Their value is $6.3 million. Trouble is, we're probably the biggest Calvary in the Midwest that wanted to, you know, move to purchase these stations. And we don't have any money. We definitely don't have $6.3 million. And yet we felt this was God's will, that he was leading us. So that became a Jordan River standing in our way, an obstacle, an impossible, impassable obstacle from human standards that stood in the way of the work we felt God wanted us to do. See, the beautiful thing about obstacles, when you're being led by the Lord, you don't have to worry about them. You pray. God's not asking you to figure out a way around it or through it. He's saying, just trust me, because his obstacles are his opportunities. And we began to pray, Lord, we have no money. We believe you want us to buy these stations, though. Lord, lead us. And through a series of circumstances, which, of course, were ordained by the Holy Spirit, the folks that own the stations actually wound up giving them to us. If we would uh, keep Pastor Chuck on, who was the pastor of Costa Mesa Calvary, and actually the church that owns these stations, if we would just put his teachings on for 10 years, they would actually give us the stations because they did want to see them used for God's glory. And if we had a heart for it, see, that's what they were looking for. Does anyone have a heart for this ministry? If you've got a heart for a ministry, God will take care of the details. Money, resources, that's never a problem for God. Changing a heart, that's a big thing. And when God, whose eyes go to and fro, about the face of the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart is right, that he might show himself strong through. When he finds a heart that says, God, here I am. You ain't got much to work with, but everything I have is yours. I will give to you my whole life. When God finds a heart like that, there's no telling how much he can do to that person. And so now we've taken a step in faith. The stations have been given to us at the end of this month. We take full ownership now, which means all the bills become ours too. Right now, as we speak, we're about $25,000 a month in the hole to make our bills. It's an obstacle. It's a walk of faith. You know, sooner you get through by one obstacle, something else is standing in the way. But it's God's way of saying, you're going to still trust me? I've led you this far. I'm going to abandon you now? Are you going to still trust me? And so we're trusting the Lord for another miracle. Because he wants to teach us he's a miraculous God. 
There's nothing hard for him. Nothing's impossible for him. Nothing's even hard for our God. So learn these lessons. Maybe you have an obstacle that's facing you right now. I don't know what it is. Maybe as you've been walking with the Lord for years, suddenly now you're facing an obstacle that goes way beyond your ability. How does God want you? to? God wants you to take a step in faith, no doubt, to trust him. It's easier to stay in the comfort zone, right? To go only so far and say, this is kind of good. I kind of like it here. I'll just kind of hang out now and fellowship and have a great time with the body of Christ. I'll just kind of hang out and just stay in my comfort zone. And God said, you can do that. I'm not going to force you to take a step in faith. But know this, you will never know the joy of seeing me work miracles in your life or in seeing me defeat the enemies that I'm leading you up against unless you are willing to step out in faith. So God, give us grace. The Christian life can be such an exciting life if we let the Spirit lead us. May God give us grace to do that very thing. Father, we so thank you, Lord, for your grace. Father, we just praise you because we know that we can do nothing apart from you, that, Lord, we are weak and insignificant, but through our Savior, by the Spirit's power, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead this church in your perfect will. We pray, Lord, that you'd provide the resources for the radio, that, Lord, your word might continue to be broadcast verse, verse by verse throughout this entire Midwest. And now, Lord, I just heard that there's a possibility uh, that somebody might give us another whole hub of stations. And, uh, Lord, it would expand uh, our numbers to 40 or 50 now. Uh, Lord, you are doing something. And we just stand back in awe and say, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. May that be our own personal testimony in each of our lives. For we ask it all now. In Jesus' name, amen.